ho, 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 it's our Christmas break and we couldn't quite leave you without a special something to wrap the year. And so we have something special for the first time coming to you, our listeners of Uncommon Decency for our Christmas break. Julian, what do we have in store for today? Well, it's the season of giving and my love language is giving gifts. That's not actually true, but um, I hear that's a thing that people say. And so we're going to give out awards and gifts to various world leaders uh, to celebrate their successes or to marvel at their failures. Um, Mm. And we're going to do that for a series of categories that myself, you and Jorge have all voted on uh, during the week. There'll be a little bit of debate because there are a couple of ones where not only did we not vote on the same issue, all three of us voted for different people. Um, Mm. So we'll have a little bit of debate to sort those out. We're going to give out some awards and gifts for our Christmas special. Fantastic. So let's begin with our very first award. It's the, the Brutus Award for Political Betrayal of the Year. Now, the options were this year Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Giuseppe Conte, Prime Minister, for, or sorry, former Prime Minister of Italy. Uh, the third one is America for not delivering Australian subs before at least until 2020, 2040, something like that. And the last option was the Pakistani military. Um, Julian, walk us through roughly all the different options and then I think you have your yours in mind quite clearly. So the first one, Rishi Sunak, had not one but two political betrayals of the year. The first was his resignation uh, earlier this year that precipitated the downfall of Boris Johnson and when he resigned as Chancellor of the Exchequer. And the second was his behind-the-scenes manoeuvring to quietly, well, not quietly, oust Liz Truss as Prime Minister uh, and then secure the job for himself. Uh, so not one, but two, and getting the job that he'd uh, been hoping to get all summer as Prime Minister. Second is Giuseppe Conti, who also engineered the downfall of a Prime Minister. But the Prime Minister he engineered the downfall of was Mario Draghi, by withdrawing from uh, the governing coalition, which forced elections. And now Giorgia Maloney is the prime minister of Italy and Mario Draghi is contemplating his options, of which he has many. The third one, this is actually one of what you nominated and I queried, but the United yeah. States last year made its deal, its AUKUS deal, in which it would provide submarines, nuclear powered submarines to Australia. There was a report earlier this year that because the United States couldn't transfer Virginia class submarines to Australia, They might not actually deliver them until 2040, um, but that's still pretty up in the air. Um, But I'll let you talk about that one since you voted for this. And then lastly, um, the Pakistani military is famous for removing its prime ministers when they don't do their bidding. And Imran Khan is the latest person to suffer this misfortune um, and quite possibly even survived an assassination attempt, um, allegedly orchestrated by the Pakistani military. But I won't speculate on that front. Okay, and uh, Jorge, what was your pick of the litter for the Brutus Award of the Political Betrayal of the Year? Well, my pick for Brutus Award for the Political Betrayal of the Year comes with a thought for the journalists who had a book ready out Mm. on Liz (laughs) Truss and who uh, I think were forced by, by the cruel twist of fate to retract their book from the shelves. They didn't quite retract it. They they delayed its publication to oh. edit it slightly and add a few other chapters at the end to explain how she wrote so quickly, but also how she felt so quickly. 
yeah. Well, the, my 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 vote goes to to Rishi Sunak just because, um, you know, I think uh, as as uh, as Julian said, uh, it's a it's a double double whammy. It's a double score, uh, betrayal of Boris and a betrayal of uh, of the uh, a prime ministerial candidate he ran against and eventually succeeded. Two wins in a year is quite impressive. I mean, going two and zero in your. Uh political betrayals is, is fairly solid work. So Julian, I suppose you're also going to vote for Rishi Sunak then? I did also vote for Rishi Sunak um, for the fact that not only did he take down Boris Johnson and then take down Liz Truss, but he then secured the top job for himself, um, which is of course something that Brutus failed to achieve. So really uh, surpassing the, the person for whom this award is named. Now, I do want to ask you about your vote. The US not delivering Australian subs. Is this because you're still mad about AUKUS? Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that. Um, there might be a little bit of spite in that decision, a bit of schadenfreude going on. Um, but no, it's just that uh, the real betrayal, in my opinion, was the AUKUS deal. Uh, but there is kind of an extra added layer of betrayal when you consider the fact that America kind of overpromised and is about to under-deliver because... Um, what's becoming increasingly clear is that the uh, the American naval infrastructures will not be uh, capable of building those submarines in time, or at least they'll be very much at the back of the queue, which means that Australia could end up being without any new submarine for quite a while. We're now looking at you know kind of a twenty forties uh, framework when you have to consider that the existing submarines Australia has will retire um, in 2038. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, maybe it's not a case of betrayal, just uh, American state capacity no longer being what it used to be. But it's something that has pained a lot of people in Paris and now looks like a lot of people down, down south in Australia were also feeling the pain of that decision. So the final tally is two to one in favor of Mr. Rishi Sunak winning the first edition of the Brutus Award. But the United States has been put on notice by Francois, and uh, I suspect we will continue to renominate them until they deliver Australian subs yes. uh, in time for the Australian Navy. That'll be um, my running joke every year. I'll make that every year. Every sometimes. year we'll just keep renominating them. Yeah. We'll be the uh, Count Binface of yeah. the Uncommon Decency Christmas Awards. <laughs> our, uh, our next one. I'm actually going to skip over the next one um, because it's quite boring. So we'll come back to World yeah. Leader of the Year. But we're going to do the Morocco at the World Cup Breakthrough Leader of the Year Award. And Jorge, would you like to walk us through the nominees? Yes. Well, um, so first of all, well, actually, starting with the, the winner, perhaps, uh, is with three votes, all of us unanimously voted uh, Georgia Maloney, the new prime minister of Italy. Uh which meant rejecting Sanamarin of Finland and Kajakalas of Estonia. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's actually really interesting that uh, we had, we had picked uh, three uh, female leaders. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Georgia Maloney is by far the female leader that is most uh, irksome to uh, feminist progressives. <laughs> uh, she's, she's a rabid critic of uh, sort of, um, of uh, ideological feminism. And I think um, she, well, I think another reason why all three of us voted for Maloney is that her party took up 
really an astounding share of the uh, governing coalition government within within the Italian Parliament. Right? It had. It, I think it it got twenty five percent of the vote for Telly. Um, and um, the other thing that's really interesting about her is that she she has a she has a really interesting career. She started out as a journalist. Um, she sort of like networked uh, herself into the political establishment, uh, but really ended up um, throwing down the gauntlet against that establishment and rising to office as, as the prime minister, uh, as a successor to one of the most technocratic governments Italy has ever had. Um, and uh, she has replaced that technocratic government with a far more populist streak of politics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, the reason I also voted for her over Sanna Marin and Kaya Kallis in, in Estonia and Finland, respectively, uh, sorry, uh, Estonia and Finland, yes, is because Italy is a, is a more impactful player in EU politics. And also because there is not kind of only a, a lesson, kind of a, a story in, in, in political success, but there is a story from like rags to riches electorally, because if you go back to the latest parliamentary election in Italy, she was at 4.4%. She is now, as Jorge said, at 26%. Um, she not only rose this rapidly, but she was quite quite clearly the junior partner, the ally of um, Matteo Salvini, uh, when Salvini was the, the big dog in the far-right politics in Italy. And she completely overtook him to become the main actor herself. Um, so yeah, quite quite a spectacular story that happened quite slowly. I mean, it wasn't it happened it didn't happen overnight during the election, of course, but it's one that is quite spectacular when you look at it in the past in the frame of the past four years. And I think if you sort of look at, um, I also voted for Maloney in part because of the way that she'd managed to accomplish something that the other leaders on the Italian right hadn't been able to do, namely becoming prime minister. But I just got to say a word on mm. and Santa Marin. So Santa Marin from Finland was in the news for things that had absolutely nothing to do with her job, um, yeah. such as her partying, as though that's a crime, apparently. Um, but I think when you look at the prime ministers of Estonia and Finland, respectively, the ways they've showed leadership have been on security, which yeah. uh, in sexist coverage of politics is considered a man's world. And I think it's really a testament to the progressive nature of those two countries and indeed to the leadership of Carlos and Marin that they have been showing global leadership, I would say, uh, on the security front with Marin spearheading Finland's application for NATO, Carlos being a regular voice uh, for Estonia and the Baltics um, when it comes to confronting Russia, not only in its invasion in Ukraine, but its other malign activities across Eastern Europe and in the Baltics as well. So yeah. those are the reasons that we nominated them. Um, but yes, as your, to your point, Jorge, very interesting that we our three nominees were all women this year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was the Morocco at the World Cup breakthrough leader of the year. Brilliantly won with all three votes by Georgia Maloney. Moving on. We're going to do next, we're going to do the Gorbachev spectacular collapse of the year. I don't know if we should have named this one after Gorbachev, um, especially because he died this year. Mm. But the nominees in memoriam, in memoriam, in memoriam. Uh, I'll I'll list the nominees and uh, and then I'll ask Francois if you want to walk us through some of them. So we've got a few nominees for this one. Uh, Liz Truss was one. Uh, Boris Johnson is another. Uh, Vladimir Putin is our third nominee. 
cryptocurrency, the EU Parliament, this was a late edition, uh, Pedro Castillo, also a late edition, and then German foreign policy, specifically Ostpolitik and peace through trade. Francois, would you like to walk us through why everyone collapsed? Let's do that. German foreign policy, I think we talked about quite a lot. Um, essentially, you had a kind of worldview in which uh, hard power politics were very far away from, from your concerns. Uh, you were willing to be naive at some point because it gave you a competitive advantage. So that was not only re- regarding uh, China on trade, but also Russia on energy. And all of that seems to be tumbling together. And uh, it seems to have at least created a big conversation in Germany, whether that means there'll be a proper transformation. We talked about it last uh, two weeks ago. And the, the, the consensus was that in many ways, actually, Germany's position hasn't changed that much, but it's kind of finding different rationales to explain why it's doing so. The other option is José Pedro Castillo Torones, or known as Pedro Castillo. Uh, he is the, or was the president of Peru. He got into office on the 28th of July and uh, 2021 and had to leave on the 7th of December 2022. He was impeached and removed from office by Congress by the Congress of Peru after basically attempting uh, what was described as a self-coup by trying to dissolve part of Congress. So it was very messy. Um, although, to be fair, there's been quite a tradition of short, uh, short-lived presidencies in Peru of late. EU Parliament, quite obvious. Uh, we found that the vice, pre- vice president of the EU Parliament um, from Greece was found with plentiful amounts of money in uh, her, her house. Her husband also had some money, uh, an Italian man. I think her, her father-in-law had money. Basically, everyone around her had money, and she had no idea how that money ended up where it was. Um, but we discovered she was a big defender of Qatar in the uh, European Parliament, and it looks like the money is indeed coming from Qatari hands. So that's a very bad look for um, for the European Parliament, given its strong stance it's taken on uh, corruption and rule of law over the past few months. Another issue, of course, is crypto. Enough said, the whole thing really, really collapsed. That also meant that big companies like uh, FTX, for example, and Sam Bankman fried also fell in its wake. Uh, quite a, you know, we always compared it to the tulips, uh, but people feel a bit stupid comparing to tulips as long as it's going up. And the moment it crashes, all of a sudden, we all become experts on the Dutch tulip market in the 16th and 17th century. Vladimir Putin, again, not a very surprising choice. Uh, he came in super confident of a war and were realizing increasingly why French intelligence thought he would never enter the war. They all thought that it was a crazy idea to do so and they would lose it. And it looks like we were right. And um, Vladimir Putin's regime is being shaken a little bit. Are you being paid commission by the French security services for these shout outs? Uh, no, I should. I should. Uh, <laughs> should be getting paid commission. If if you're listening to me, France, uh-huh. uh, Mr. Macron, I I am happy to take the checks. Please send them my way. Um, I will be I will be the vice president of Uncommon Decency, taking some bribe money if we have to. Um, last choice is of course Boris Johnson. Uh, he was one of the most um, one of the best elected prime ministers in the history of. Uh, the UK in the, sec- in the post-Second World War era. Uh, he seemed to have a massive mandate b- behind him. He managed somehow to 
smudge his way out of a whole Brexit kerfuffle that Theresa May got herself into. And uh, all of a sudden, Partygate happened. And despite all his efforts on the Ukraine front to shore up Ukraine, but also shore up his own government, um, he has collapsed. And the last choice is Liz Truss. Um, she is, at the moment, and probably will be for quite a while, the shortest serving prime minister in the history of the uh, of all prime ministers since the very... Remind me, was the first prime minister, Julian? Uh, Walpole. Yes, since Robert Walpole um, was uh, was nominated. Ironically, was the, the longest serving prime minister. Yes, longest is, is a debate, but the shortest is no longer debate because Liz Truss had to resign after a eventful 45 days, which included the death of a queen, which as a result will get the trickiest trivia question in the history of trivia questions in about 15 years, when people have to know whether the Queen Elizabeth died during Boris Johnson's term, during Liz Truss's term, or during Richie Sunak's term. And only two or three nerds such, such as us will be able to remember that she actually died during the very short term of Liz Truss. Um, and I think for all the reasons I just listed, uh, Liz Truss is our choice. Uh, she maybe wasn't the right woman at the right time. Maybe there was some uh, some good points to be made and maybe the, U- the UK probably needs to uh, inject some energy into the economy. But the way it was done and, to be honest, the, the priorities she chose seem to be not the, good, not the right one for the United Kingdom. And as a result, she was unceremoniously sacked and doing lasting damage to the image of the Conservative Party. Julian? I think it's quite remarkable. And I I do think it's important to consider if the Boris Johnson and Liz Truss ones are in some ways linked in my mind, because obviously Liz Truss succeeded Boris Johnson. Um, But Truss came into office promising a whole new economic approach that um, some people had considered to be unwise and it went from a sort of budget that wasn't really a budget, but announced a whole lot of tax cuts, yep. precipitating a financial crisis in the British bond markets um, that ended up sort of confirming that not only was the economic policy not the right one to pursue, but also that maybe Truss's judgment was in question. And then when she sacked her chancellor, whom she had known very well since university um, and whose ideas she had been endorsing on her campaign trail, to suddenly sack him, blame him, and then reverse course in the matter of a week. It's it sort of affirmed for many people that perhaps she wasn't um, the right person for the job and had been, you know, angling, been getting into Downing Street through playing the politics, not necessarily the policy, and understanding the moment that Britain was in uh, and needing sort of sober and stable leadership uh, and her sort of attempt to be bold in the manner of Boris Johnson, which is what he was very good at doing. Um, he was good at being bold on ideas and light on detail. Uh, Liz Truss attempted to do something similar, um, but it backfired quite spectacularly. And I think that's why uh, she got our, all of our votes for the, the biggest collapse of the year. Uh, Jorge, do you have any last thing to add to the eulogy of the short term of uh, Miss Truss? Well, I think um, I actually, well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, some of the characters here sort of squeezed uh, their way into this list at the very last minute. I think Pedro Castillo mm-hmm. uh, was, um, uh, I mean, his his sort of self coup was was in the news just uh, last week, wasn't it? So 
some of these um some of these people have been have collapsed uh more recently than others but i think list trust is unanimously again uh really the uh the gorbachev of uh uk politics okay well she got punished for trying to um to implement glasnost in, in the united kingdom would that be an apt comparison um but anyways let's let's move on to our next award i think, I think, you, mean, I think you mean perestroika sorry perestroika yes i got the two mixed up um so let's move on to the le- the last sorry not the last the next award which is the charles de gaulle political comeback of a year um again uh french uh security establishment do pay money for every time i mention uh, french historian and politicians and, and generals and i will gladly take the money um so the options are Leo Varadkar, the Tarsic, um, the Prime Minister of uh, Ireland, who somehow keeps coming back and sticking. Um, then there is Bibi Netanyahu, who is basically unkillable politically. You always feel like he's done, and somehow he still manages to survive. Um, then there is Anwar Ibrahim, uh, the Prime Minister of Malaysia, who's back. And there is also... Lula, um, who is back in office in Brazil as the new president after uh, he was president, I think, 20, 15 years ago, and he's back in office again. And the last one is Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Now, a few words on each of them. Um, June, for example, do you want to get, do you want to get started on, on Leo Varadka? Yeah, so we did an episode on Ireland, uh, and one thing that we noted was the interesting political coalition that bound the two uh, rivals, Fiona Fáil and Fine Gael, together for the first time. And part of that was a power-sharing arrangement in which the former Taoiseach, Michael Martin, would hand over to Leo Varadkar, who was serving as deputy. And that transition actually happened. So mm. cooperative coalition government working well in Ireland there. Speaking of cooperative coalition governments, let's talk about uncooperative coalition governments with Netanyahu. Um, Jorge, what did you pick, Netanyahu? Well, I think several things make Bibi's return uh, remarkable. Um, one of them, you've got to realize that Bibi was the architect, well, not the architect, actually. The architect was um, was um, Donald Trump's son-in-law, uh, mm, uh, but Trump actually... Yeah, but Bibi was in office when the uh, breakthrough, the diplomatic breakthrough of the Abraham Accords was achieved. Uh, and these are the accords that have um, that whereby uh, a whole range of Arab countries have uh, all of a sudden begun to recognize Israel's existence and its right to exist, actually. Uh, so that I think Bibi uh, claims rightfully a lot of credit for ushering in uh, a new era of diplomatic concord in the Middle East, uh, not in the immediate uh, vicinity of Israel. Obviously, the uh, Jordan, Syria, and, and Lebanon uh, have yet to recognize uh, Israel's uh, existence, even though they're uh, next-door neighbors to it. But uh, other countries, and equally important ones like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Dubai, uh, even Sudan, and Morocco have uh, exceeded, have uh, come around to recognizing uh, Israel. But I think Bibi's return is remarkable for another really important um, factor, which is that he has uh, 
uh, put together a coalition that includes parties that no one ever thought could uh, get into government. And these are the religious Zionist parties, parties like Otsma Yehudit, uh, where uh, 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 you, may actually, you, may have, uh, you may have actually heard of Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is the leader of Otsma Yehudit. Otsma Yehudit means Jewish power. And mm-hmm. Itamar Ben-Gavir is feared by the Israeli left and the Palestinian minority to uh, be the likeliest uh, man to become interior secretary. So I think Bibi's, again, Bibi's record is, uh, uh, is, um, is, is pretty complex, but in, in a short few words, he has helped uh, establish Israel as a diplomatic reality in the region that no one can really credibly deny. And he has also steered the country to, in, a, in a rightward uh, direction that now includes religious parties, which were very, which very uh, were very um, uh, minor uh, just a few years ago. Mm. Let's try and pick this up. We don't want to be too late on, on schedule. But uh, Julian, you picked our man Anwar Ibrahim. Why is that? So Anwar Ibrahim's comeback is quite exceptional because it's been forty years in the making. Mm. So he had been a leading um, voice in like, you know, in the 20th century for uh, modernizing Malaysia and advocating for a modernist, uh, Islamist interpretation in politics. And then he was betrayed by his political mentor, Mahathir Mohammed, and sent to jail. He came back from jail, um, became another leading light, became close again to obtaining the post of prime minister once more, and then was betrayed again by Mahathir Mohammed and sent to jail. And now finally, in 2022, he has gotten the office that he has been seeking for so long. So not only one jail stint, but two jail stints um, before becoming prime minister of Malaysia, which is a truly remarkable comeback because of our next person also spent some time in jail, um, but not quite as long and on not quite the same charges. Uh, Francois, do you want to talk about your vote, Mr. Yes, Mr. Lula. So... Lula was one of the most popular presidents of the uh, history of the 21st century in Brazil. He got elected in 2002 and got re-elected in 2006. And he, he, you know, he then left, but remained this kind of massively popular figure. Uh, there's kind of uh, GDP grew quite considerably. There's a lot of uh, drop in poverty and equality. Uh, so he remained this kind of very important figure on the Brazilian left, but 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 the, the following decade after he left, and even to be honest, most of the time when he was in office, were played by corruption scandals and so on, reaching the point when he was actually charged and sent in jail in 2018 um, because of those accusations. And the story is that the judge who actually char- made sure he got charged for corruption ended up being the Minister of Justice of um, Bolsonaro. And because of his corruption charges, he was not able to run against Bolsonaro in 2018. So he comes back in 2022, after it was decided that the ruling was actually um, was nullified because it was considered not to have proper jurisdiction to rule over the case of Lula. So he comes back in 2022, wins a razor close election against um, Bolsonaro. So yeah, quite quite an impressive comeback. Um, I guess then we're going to reach the awkward point where we're going to have to decide uh, who's going to change his vote. 
Yeah, um, I will say our last nominee was Mohammed bin Salman, and that's mostly yeah. because he managed to go from being a pariah to getting a fist bump with the president of the United States. <laughs> Although that is generally how Joe Biden greets people in the COVID era, so I think that was a little overblown. Um, Jorge, yeah, are you open to changing your vote, or are you as set in stone as it is possible to be? I think I um, my uh, um, um, reputation among uh, listeners of the show is that I have a very keen interest in Israeli issues, so that kind of biases me, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Bibi. Julian, are you willing to join join the dark side of Bibi or the, the the right side of Lula, or do you want to stick with her guns? I just think you know I got to stick with Anwar. It's been he's been opposition leader twice. He first had a run in the nineties, and he's become prime minister in twenty twenty two. He was sent to jail twice on trumped up sodomy tra- charges. I think that's yep. to be able to just stick with that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, went to jail once. I, I'm going to join the Ibrahim um, uh, side because uh, he went to prison twice, and uh, and Lula only went to prison once. But uh, it was a tight run of end, guys, and so the De Gaulle political comeback of a year uh, award will be given to Anwar Ibrahim, Prime Minister Congratulations, of Malaysia. Congratulations. If Lula uh, goes to jail a second time, we'll have to redo this vote. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Um, okay, moving on to the Alphabet Soup Award, aka the most absurd acronym of the year. We've got three. First one is the IRA, not that IRA, but confusingly the Inflation Reduction Act in America, which we've covered quite a lot of the past few weeks. The uh, uh, Zombie Act, which is one of those incredibly funny acronyms that are essentially just uh, words packed together to uh, make sure we would actually get a good acronym. So the Zombie Act means zeroing out money for buying influence after elections, which is about campaign accounts in the United States. Um, it's a funny one, but, you know, it, it feels a bit odd to be naming your act a zombie act. And the last one will be given to the uh, to people who don't really know how acronyms work, but who are making it even longer than normal words, which is the LGBTQQIAAP or the LGBTQQIP2SAA. Um, so those acronyms have been popping up a little bit and really you're reaching a point where you, you need to get shorter. And so I, the LGBT plus has been a much better acronym for, for, for that, thank God, because those acronyms were getting a little out of hand. Um, so Francois, this, can you say what every letter there stands for? Because if you can't, then I think the acronym is self-defeating. Oh, uh, just no, I cannot. I, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans. There's probably going to be a queer some fit somewhere. Intersexual, a queer ase- questioning. asexual, questioning. Uh, yeah, I don't know all of them, but it's 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 quite a word salad here. Um, I think it has to be the IRA because yeah. naming a piece of infrastructure legislation after a terrorist group that yeah. blew up pieces of critical infrastructure is a bit on the nose, even for a country that is as proud of its Irish heritage as the United yeah. States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so the Alphabet Super Award, a.k.a. the most absurd acronym of the year, is going to the IRA. Congratulations, the IRA. Uh, moving on. So the, the next category in this year's uh, special Uncommon Decency Christmas Awards is the Survivor, a.k.a. the How Do You Even Still Have a Job Award. 
And uh, in contention this year, we have three uh, political leaders. We have uh, Berlusconi uh, with one vote. We have Cristina Fernández de Kirchner from Argentina with one vote. And we have Sergei Shoigu. Uh, again, we, we need a tiebreaker um, or else we need to... Because I, I went with um, Sergio Berlusconi. The reason I'm saying that is because that man has been in politics for basically ever. First of all, he was born in 1936. Uh, which is kind of a crazy stat here. Um, he's is, is, is that that makes him older than, than Joe Biden, right? It does. Yeah, that makes him so that, that in itself is kind he's of crazy. Eighty six years old. He's eighty six. Yeah, it's absolutely ludicrous. He's been prime minister of Italy in four governments. He's been in politics since nineteen ninety four, and he's been kind of holding on into you know in the world of politics for like the past decade. Despite the fact he's clearly no longer the main attraction. And is increasingly unpopular. And I'm not sure if you saw some of his comments about women he made during the latest election. Uh, it's 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 gross. It's very much gross. And you're feeling like he 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 overstayed his welcome a little bit. And uh, the centre right in Italy deserves a lot better than Berlusconi at the moment, if you ask me. I I will say so. I voted for Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defence minister. Um, but I will say I'm willing to switch my vote for one reason and one reason only. The only reason uh, Shoigu has a job is because he is a friend of Putin and rubber stamps everything he says. Mm. He's not actually really in charge of anything in Russia. Mm. So he doesn't actually have a job. He has a, he has a title. Um, and I'm sure criminologists are going to come at me for not understanding the Russian security establishment. Mm. But he's not really the person controlling things on the ground, in part because he did get removed from that position early on when the invasion didn't go to plan. So I'm willing to change my vote i think the only person i can vote for really jorge mr kirshner would you like to explain why she's on our list well you got to realize that argentina is a fantastically corrupt country mm. um but christina really has well christina lays a special claim to being uh perhaps the, the most corrupt or at least her She's a sign of a family who was lived on in Argentinian politics since uh, uh, Alberto, uh, Alberto Fernandez was a was a was an official in, in her government, um, and Nestor, her uh, husband, has also been involved in politics. But um, but you've got to realize that she built this uh, political modus operandi that essentially involved doling out massive sums of cash to people. Uh, connected to the to the government through trade unions, through uh, they have this very sort of corporatist regime in Argentina where uh, the Peronist party, uh, which is again now the party in power, uh, can control large swaths of society by co-opting uh, the trade unions, the business associations, the youth associations, the retirement associations. So it's it's a sort of all of society approach that makes Peronism very special. And, and, uh, and I think what I, what I was hoping to, to highlight uh, with this pick is that uh, the, is that even though, is that being corrupt doesn't mean you can't do a good job of running the country. These people have been elected many times before, even though everyone knows that their system runs on corruption. Um, since Argentina just beat France, I cannot vote for the Argentinian option. I will stick with Berlusconi. <laughs> well, I'm going to switch my vote over to Christine Fernandez de Kirchner. So she is going to win this award. That's done. That's done. And there we go. 
And so the uh, least, um, it, well, no, I'm going to say not, not least interesting, but one least suspense for sure is the uh, Leader of the Year Award. So I think we can call it the Zelensky Leader of the Year Award, with the nominees being uh, Jens Stoltenberg of NATO, uh, Valery Zaluzhny uh, of the Ukraine Armed Forces, and uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. And we all picked Zelensky because, yeah, let's face it, we had Andrew Roberts. We had Andrew Roberts in on the podcast last uh, last spring, and he was talking about how there's a lot of similarities between Zelensky and Churchill, and where they reacted to to the crisis, to war, and so that's definitely um, that's something that's quite exciting to see how he's kind of transformed himself from a comedian to a uh, a, a man capable of leading his country through uh, through the war. Yeah, I think this one was fairly easy to do. And yep. every other newspaper, when they're doing their person of the year, I think has picked Zelensky as well. And despite my instinct to be contrarian, it, it really did have to be him. And I think it's not just the leadership nationally, but if you look at every speech that he's made in all of the parliaments around the world um, and how they've been tailored to that specific audience, um, I think it's been a, a masterful job from a communications perspective as well as... Um, from his political and military leadership and working with his commanders. Okay, so now let's move on to things to watch in 2023. And we'll begin with the people to watch in 2023, which include um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan from Turkey. We've got also uh, Christian Freeland um, from, from, uh, from Canada. Canada. We've got Viktor Orban from Hungary and Robert Habeck from Germany. Um, I picked Erdogan because he has put himself in a kind of very interesting position for the uh, months to come, at least, because he was hitting really kind of a, a political dead end in Turkey. And now all of a sudden, diplomatically, his position is very interesting because he's still talking to Russia He's still kind of supplying Ukraine with drones. And uh, he has an election coming by the end of the year. And there's also all the tensions going on with Greece. So I think Erdogan has been known for his kind of erratic leadership. But he's in a position, a very kind of uh, strategic position for the months to come. Jorge, you uh, you pick Viktor Orban as your person to watch. Why, why is he on your list? Well, um, I have to confess on this one, I would... Uh, struggle for words if I was accused of uh, uh, taking uh, taking undue influence from uh, Hungary in this case. As, as some of our uh, people in our in our audience are aware, I've uh, I spent some time in Hungary a couple of summers ago as a visiting fellow at Matthias Corvinus Collegium, and I do like returning uh, as often as possible uh, for conferences. And Viktor Orban is. He's a unique political animal. One of the things that strikes me the most every time I return to Hungary, which is once every two or three months, but every time I get the same takeaway, which is that Fidesz is, well, no, not Fidesz, Viktor Orban's leadership is uncontested. Uh, there are no runner-ups, no political rivals that could vie for the, the prime ministership uh, in Hungary. Orban is... Uh, loved by essentially uh, everyone right of center uh, uh, all the way to uh, the far right, uh, excluding the far right. The far right is actually against the government, interestingly enough. But the, the, the huge chunk of the country that is on the right of center is um, 
is on board with Orban, even if he walked up on the uh, one of the main thoroughfares on the Pest side and shot someone up, uh, right? Just to borrow Donald Trump's um, saying that he would be just as popular if he uh, walked on Fifth Avenue, shot someone. Uh, yeah. j- just uh, Orban can essentially r- uh, run into, or Orban can really do virtually anything. Uh, he will remain uh, the towering political figure that he is. Uh, and and I think the other reason, uh, the other uh, reason why he's a special figure is that he has uh, uh, he has um, defied the international uh, uh, condemnation of the humanitarian NGOs. He has defied the United States of Joe Biden. He has gone on to increase his electoral majority at the last election. He now run, he now governs with a two-thirds majority in parliament, which is unheard, unheard of. And um and again, I I um I think I think he's someone that's gonna uh keep uh keep being the uh um uh, the um scapegoat of uh Western liberals. For me, someone who is on the opposite side of the political spectrum, but I think will be quite possibly the most important person, not in 2023, but one of the most important people in 2024 is Christia Freeland. And the reason is I'm going to make a prediction. And I know you should never make predictions on podcasts because people write them down and they remind you of them when they fall through. But I think Christia Freeland is going to be nominated to be the secretary general to replace Jens Stoltenberg when his term is up uh, next autumn, uh, making her the first woman to hold the position. Uh, She's very popular in Washington, in part because of her time as the Canadian foreign minister, which has meant flying a lot between Ottawa and Washington, D.C., to uh, cement that relationship. She speaks a lot of languages, including, um, crucially, Russian. Uh, So I think she would be extremely well-placed to be the next NATO Secretary General, and that's why I think she is the person to watch in 2023. Okay, so let's move on for the country to watch in 2023. Um, we've got a few options. Julian, what did you pick? So I picked Taiwan. And this is kind of a boring choice because it was a hot spot in 2022. It's expected to be a hot spot in 2023, and it should be a hot spot again in 2024. But I think that Ukraine has stolen a lot of the spotlight um, in terms of donations. And in one particular aspect, military aid. The United States has sent a lot of arms to Ukraine. This has caused some issues with the United States supplying Taiwan, which is itself at risk of being invaded by an imperial power that sees it as part of its natural domain, namely China. And the United States has been supplying Taiwan with arms for a while, but a lot of the arms that they should be sending have been redirected to Ukraine um, because of the demands of that conflict in particular. So Taiwan is my country to watch on that perspective. And then the other one, um, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, is Taiwan's centrality in global supply chains when it comes to semiconductor manufacturing. We've talked a little bit about how the United States and the European Union are are both trying to build more semiconductors within their own territories. Um, Taiwan's critical security interest is in making sure that the highest end chips continue to be made in Taiwan, uh, TSMC being the main foundry for this. Um, So it's going to continue to be that centerpiece of global tech supply chains. Um, It's going to continue to be a flashpoint for uh, US-China relations and the incoming probable, although this is a whole other 
topic that we could talk about another day of Kevin McCarthy, who is expected to be the next Speaker of the House, but it's not confirmed or guaranteed by any stretch, um, is planning to copy Nancy Pelosi and fly to Taiwan. When Pelosi went to Taiwan, there was a risk that the Chinese might actually um, threaten to shoot down her plane, uh, which would have sparked World War III. Um, the Chinese did a lot of military drills around that particular trip. So we would see the same thing if McCarthy went. So Taiwan is my country to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jorge, your, your country to watch. Yes. Well, um, I think for similar reasons to uh, my my previous choice of Orban as a person to watch, Italy is the country to watch in 2023 because I think it can really move the needle at the EU Council um, and maybe perhaps even push back against some of the um, some of the um, uh, sort of anti-conservative bias that it, that you've seen in in this parts of the EU institutional um, uh, ecosystem, um, and I think uh, it can also be domestically an interesting place to watch because I think uh, they're going to be coming out with a lot of really interesting policy proposals on migration, family policy. Um, perhaps even uh, something like aid to, aid to persecuted Christians in the Middle East, you know, that the, the kind of things that you expect a conservative government to to legislate on. So I've, my pick is Italy. My pick is Poland for a few reasons. I think there's at least three of them. First one is there's going to be some elections in uh, before November 2023 at the latest. And uh, the ruling government has still a lead, but one has been narrowing progressively over the past few months. So I'll be interested to see how they deal with that. Second reason is I think the kind of political geography of Europe, of the EU, has tipped to the east quite a lot over the past few months, making Poland very much a central actor, giving all the um, giving conflict in Ukraine. And they've played a central role in mobilizing the EU to take tough sanctions against Russia. And the last issue is one which is somewhat related to what I just talked about, but it's Poland's relationship with Hungary. Um, you know, it, it, they used to be part of the same group, the Visegrad, Visegrad 4. And um, with the war in Ukraine, basically some of the distance created between Poland and Hungary. Hungary wants more lean sanctions. Poland is more hawkish. And at the same time, on issues like rule of law, uh, um, Poland and Hungary seem to be on the same bench at times. So it's an interesting situ- country that will be one to watch in the months to come, given their kind of central position in EU politics. This is the uh, point in the award show um, where we do the in memoriam roll call. Uh, and we're going to start. We only have five names on it. Um, Abe Shinzo is number one, which is going to get me in a lot of trouble when I name number two. But Japan recently announced a massive increase in defense spending. Um, and that's partly a legacy of Abe Shinzo's time in office and his ideological influence over the country. Our second one, Queen Elizabeth II. And as I've said that, all of my British cousins have immediately thrown up in arms that I didn't put her first. Um, but let's put it, Marie do much. Um, next is Zhang Zemin, uh, former Chinese premier. China, obviously, a country to watch every year and all the time. And Zhang Zemin was at the uh, heart of some of the major ideological disputes Um over over the future direction of China, and interestingly enough, would object to the categorization of Gorbachev as the man who uh, led oversaw the downfall of the Soviet Union, who is also on our list of in memoriam Mikhail Gorbachev. And then the last one is I think someone who taught all three of us, and that's Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State of the United yep. States. 
Yeah, a special word for that. She was uh, my professor at Georgetown. She was your professor at Georgetown, Julian. I'm not sure Jorge actually had her um, as a professor, but she, um, an amazing class. Uh, she did all those very interesting simulations. I remember mine was on the war in Yemen. Um, yeah, a great professor who had clearly, clearly liked sharing her, uh, her experience with students. I understand she's a controversial uh, figure because of some of the political decisions she made in the 1990s. But, um, you know, I, I you know, remember her fondly for the professor she was. Yeah, next up. And we're going to post this um, for our patrons. We'll post this in the, we'll post some of this on, on the Patreon site so that you can link to this. But these are some of the books that we read this year that we thought were really, really good. And we want you to um, go out and read so that you can continue to learn and understand more about the world. And also, if you think our selections are terrible, then you can let us know by emailing us or contacting us on Twitter. Um, at Uncommon Decency Pod, although Twitter might be closed down by the time this website yeah. <laughs> goes out. Um, Jorge, you have several books. Do you want to walk us through uh, the books that you've selected for your books of the year? Yes. Um, first of all, the first book on my list is going to sound familiar to uh, mm. those among our reader uh, or those among our listeners who. Uh, listened into the episode with uh, Stefan Auer, who is the author of the book, and Glenn Morgan, who is sort of his intellectual nemesis. Uh, that is that was an episode that I was very keen on sort of uh, hosting. Uh, unfortunately, I, I I wasn't able to go. I wasn't I wasn't able to be there. But uh, I read the book and I reviewed it for the European Conservative, and I think it's uh, the book is is a good sort of rendition of what I would call Euro realism. Uh, which is essentially a worldview that regards the European Union in a sort of realist way, not in an idealistic way. Um, so I, I, when, I, when I look at the European Union, I try to strip it clean of its ideological commitments. I look at it as a locus of power um, and nothing else. Um, and when you take that view, uh, very often you are driven to uh, the conclusions that Stefan Auer is driven to, which is that uh, the EU should remain uh, an intergovernmental forum for the voluntary cooperation between nationally uh, democratically elected governments instead of becoming a supranational behemoth uh, that is beholden to neither the voters nor their uh, rep, nor even their their representatives. So that that would be my first book, uh, European Disunion. Should I should I go on to the the second one? Yes, go ahead. The second one is a very interesting one. It's called the Seventh Member State, and it's a it's a history book by Megan Brown, who's who's a young historian at Harvard. And this is a brilliant book book that looks at the economic consequences of the Algerian War when uh, uh, Algeria is um, enmeshed in, into a, a long war for independence throughout the 1960s, uh, and when it finally becomes independent in 19... Uh, François, is it 1960? Independence 62. 62. Uh, right. So, so actually, so er, er, early on that decade, when Algeria uh, becomes independent, uh, all of the regulations that had uh, hit her to apply into to that territory, which used to be a French region. So as part of France was part of the European economic community. But all of a sudden, the regulations no longer applied. And that created a whole, whole host of frictions at the borders with goods coming in and out, people moving in and out. And this is an economic history of that problem. Uh, my next book is uh, a book by two uh, China scholars of the American Enterprise Institute, Michael Be Beckley uh, and Hall Brands. 
Uh, it's called Danger Zone. It argues that um, even though the U.S. and China are locked into a geopolitical contest for the twenty for the twenty first century, that is going to last very long. The defining decade is uh, the one that's just ahead of us now. In the in the following decade, the, these two authors argue uh, the the fate of the world will be decided. Um, so the, the uh, America has to be very very deliberate about winning the long contest for global hegemony in the following decade. And my final book, and I'll stop at this, my final book is by Yoram Hazoni, who we have not heard on the podcast, uh, but he's an interesting uh, intellectual on the right. Uh, His book, Conservatism, A a Rediscovery, is a sort of a a sweeping magnum opus. Um, I have my, my review of it is forthcoming in the European Conservative as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, just, just another interesting thinker to, to, to think about. What, what about yeah. you guys? Um, I only had three. Um, I, I, I didn't, didn't get the, the dress code and thought we were doing three books. So I only have three, but, um, my three books are the Thucydides Trap. Um, actually I had by Graham Allison, I had only read the articles, but never the book. And so I actually took the time to read the entire book. Um, it's a really important structural read when you talk about, because everybody's talking about Facilities Trap all the time. So it's the idea that the rise of uh, a power will create so much tension that the established power will at some point decide declaring war to it or, or the opposite. And so it talks about those tensions going back to the Peloponnesian War. So that's definitely one I recommend. The other one is in French, but I have no doubt it will be translated in um, in English. It's called uh, Le Mage du Kremlin, The Wizard of the Kremlin. It's written by a, a Swiss-Italian uh, political scientist who works at Sciences Po. It's a remarkable book where he uh, he talks about the history of the rise of the kind of inner circle of Vladimir Putin. And it's a fictional book, but that's very much based on one of Putin's close um, um, spin, spin, uh, spin doctors, and it's an incredible, insightful read on Russia in the 1990s and on Vladimir Putin. And the last one is one which I currently have in my hand right now, which is um, uh, Poland, A History by Adam Zamoyski. Uh, it's a very dense book. There's a lot going on. But if you're someone like me who came in not knowing that much about the history of Poland, it's a fascinating read. There's so much going on. And uh, you kind of realize there's, there's an entire history of, of Europe that you never really heard about. So I recommend A History Poland by Adam Zamoyski, also someone we had on the podcast before. It's funny, the Thucydides trap, I'm fairly certain, in a classic case of the United States renaming books, although Graham Allison, I suppose, is American. Um, I think mm. the book title here is Destined for War, um, oddly enough, in the United States. But uh, right. I, I, I do also love that book. It's a very, very interesting mm. read. Um, as a catalogued history. Um, my four, uh, sorry, sorry, Francois, that I did four. Um, the first one is Ship War by Chris Miller, which is a really good read and also quite a quick read um, on the history of semiconductors and semiconductor industry and their importance for global trade and global security and the coming clash between the United States and China for control of that critical industry. We've already seen the US put export controls in. So you want to understand more about that, uh, read Chip War by Chris Miller. Uh, Something that is not a short, quick read, but it is nevertheless a magnificent work of history is Blood and Ruins by Richard Overy. This catalogues the Second World War 
1931 to 1945. Um, the fourth title is Blood and Ruins, The Last Imperial War um, from 1931 to 1945. Uh, and Overy sort of charts the history of the Second World War in microscopic detail, including the role of therapists in the respective armed forces of the fighting nations. It's an incredible work of history and magnificent scope too. My next one, also a guest on our podcast. So if you're listening and uh, you have a book to promote, you know, you should give us an email um, by Angela Stent, Putin's World, Russia Against the West. Yeah. West. Professor Stent, uh, another professor at Georgetown who taught uh, for myself on Russian foreign policy. It's a, it's a magnificent work um, covering Russian foreign policy and also some of the history of Russia too, but mostly uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union really sort of gets into um, Russia's relationships with countries in Europe and Asia and then, of course, the rest of the world. Um, it was pointed out that when the initial UN vote happened, the majority of countries voted to condemn Russia. But if you looked at population, um, Russia had the majority of the world. And this sort of examines why that is the case and why Russia is so effective diplomatically um, in some parts of the world. And then my last book is The Revenge of Geography by mm. Robert Kaplan. Uh, Robert D. Kaplan, I should say, because there is another Robert Kaplan who was the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank until recently. Um, Robert Kaplan is a big fan of uh, geographic determinism and its role in foreign policy and geostrategy. And the revenge of geography covers sort of the grand sweep of global geography and looking at the destinies of country as it relates to the maps and territories that they have um, and includes a lot of fascinating insights um, about... Uh, what would be described, you know, people talk about Eurasia as the heartland, um, but mm. then also the rimland around uh, Eurasia and some of the critical countries there uh, and the role they will play in the 21st century geopolitical competition. And we will link to all of these books again yep. on our Patreon. So you can. Uh, fun fact, fun fact to wrap it up. Um, I had a Christmas party with Robert Kaplan one day once. Um, and uh, yeah, it's very cool. I, I didn't realize that was Robert Kaplan who wrote that book specifically, but I just connected the dots at the moment. I have so. three of his books actually on my website. I've got Revenge of Geography, Marco Polo's World, which is also the Return of Marco Polo, which is just a collection of essays. But I think the first book that he wrote was Balkan Ghosts, and then he has a new mm. one out um, on the Adriatic. Fantastic. Which I haven't maybe, read. Maybe we should have him one day. Yeah. We should. Yeah. Okay. Well, ho, ho, ho. This was our. Uncommon Decency Annual Award, um, Political Award, and we had uh, many winners, which included um, the likes of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, for the Alphabet Soup Award. We got the De Gaulle Political Comeback of the Year going to Anwar Ibrahim, the Gorbachev Spectacular Collapse of the Year going to Liz Truss, the Morocco at the World Cup Breakthrough Leader of the Year going to Georgia Maloney, the lead of the year going to the Volodymyr Zelensky, of course, and the Brutus Award going to Rishi Sunak. Um, thank you so much for this wonderful Christmas uh, special conversation, and uh, we hope to see all of you next year. Happy holidays, everyone, and happy Hanukkah. Yes. Absolutely.